Welcome to Relentless Truth with John Warren, the podcast that extracts truth from a wide range of topics, revealing who God is, who we are, and how we relate to each other. Now, here's John with this week's powerful and practical insights. Welcome to Relentless Truth. I'm John Warren. It's good to be with you again. Boy, wasn't it Catherine Berger? If you if you didn't uh, listen last week, listen to uh, my conversation with Catherine Berger. It's available on my website, johnwarrenmedia.com or wherever you get your podcast. What a blessing she is. She and Russell and their family are. Her story's incredible. I hope you'll share it with friends. It's just one of the most compelling, powerful stories of God's faithfulness through suffering that I think I've ever heard. And she is just a delight. And so is Russell. He was a guest on this podcast uh, some time ago. You can find that episode as well. And so a special thank you to Catherine and Russell and uh, the youngsters in that family for the blessing that they have been to all of us. You can also find them on AGTV, which is a great streaming service. AGTV or the American Gospel Films, where they are featured. Their story is told so well there. So this episode today, uh, we're gonna we're gonna do something a little different, and I hope you'll you'll just bear with me through what really should be a a video presentation in in some ways. But we're gonna, we're gonna talk about our government in the U.S. And, and it's not the usual conceptual conversation. It's, it's about our fiscal problem that we have, and we're going to spell it out uh, very, very clearly in, in no uncertain terms. You know, we've, we've recently had an election, and, you know, the results were kind of mixed, and, and it, it's hard to make an argument that either party is doing particularly well. I guess the Democrats did a little better than they thought in this election, but we're sort of a a mixed country in in many respects and as James Rosen pointed out the reporter Washington DC reporter pointed out on this podcast some time ago the issues within the parties the polarization within the parties is is a huge part of the problem and that's that's really for another to to discuss another day but all of this just reminds me of and and I I can't escape mainly because I'm addicted to it the the financial news and and I'm I'm fascinated by really where we are uh, relative to other countries and where we are relative to our history and I'm gonna I'm just gonna talk about that today so I hope you'll you'll like share review and subscribe to Relentless Truth go to my website John Warren Media. Uh, to learn more about us, our sponsor is always uh, CFS Financial, Christian Financial Solutions. We do business as CFS Financial. You can learn more about that company and our work at johnwarrenmedia.com. Well, as as I often say, I am grateful for my students at Circle Christian School. A young lady in one of my classes uh, this week told me that her dad is a loyal listener and uh, that that just gives me great pleasure. It's also intimidating because I want to deliver rich content for all of you. I received communication 
from all over the world. Um, I'm, I'm just grateful that uh, that that this podcast is uh, is is doing what we set out to do. It is hard for me to believe that this is episode seventy two. That means for seventy two weeks, I have not taken a break, and I'm going to take one, uh, God willing, after this episode for five weeks. So we're going to have Relentless Truth Rewind for five weeks, and we're going to bring back some of my favorite, not that not that others aren't also my favorites, but uh, favorite episodes. And, and I've selected the four episodes where uh, my friend uh, Charlie Parrish, Pastor Charlie Parrish, up in Marble Hill, Georgia, at Foothills Community Church, uh, was a guest four times. And... We're going to replay those episodes and my conversation with Sharla Elton. Sharla is the superintendent of uh, a Christian school called Heritage Christian School in Canton, Ohio. And those episodes, because yeah, I, I, I mean, I don't know how to how to grade them all or rate them, but they, they seem to have been particularly meaningful based on my feedback from all of you. So we're going to have a little rewind for five weeks. I hope you'll stay with us through that period. We'll release episodes just like we always do, uh, but they will be uh, repeat episodes from uh, Charlie Parrish and Sharla Elton. And then the second Monday in January, we come back with uh, new episodes, and I have some exciting episodes planned. I'm really looking forward to that. So uh, thank you for supporting Relentless Truth. Again, you can send along comments to me uh, via email at john at johnwarrenmedia.com or go to johnwarrenmedia.com for our uh, contact page. And uh, don't hesitate to reach out. In fact, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to give you homework today, if I may. Uh, I'm going to ask you to contact your, your member of the House or Senate or both, your Congress people, our Congress people, and, and I'm going to ask you to deliver a message to them and uh we, we might have some fun with this. I'd love to hear how that goes. I find it very challenging to communicate with them. Every year I call them in class, in class, on, on, a, on a Bose speaker that I have connected to my phone via Bluetooth. I call them, and this year um, I got in touch with an intern, uh, of all things, at Marco Rubio's office. I live in Florida, as you probably know, and... Uh, uh, Senator Rubio uh, was just reelected for another six year term. And I, I call his office and Rick Scott's office. I usually get a recording when I do this every year. I'm, I'm really trying to talk to the students about government functioning at the consent of the governed, a really important uh, foundational concept. And I, I, one of the ways we express that consent is we talk to them. I mean, it, you know, it's, it's hard to do that unless you go to one of those town hall meetings and happen to get a good seat or get called on. But one easy way to 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 express consent is to vote. I mean, the easiest way is to vote, and then and then another one is to pick up the phone and call. Although I don't ever get through to them, so we'll get to the homework in a minute. And it's really not homework, as you know. Um, this this week, I want to talk about, uh, and, and this it, you know, it's going to feel like a downer, uh, but but it's a it's realistic, I think, to have this conversation about our budget deficit. It's really interesting to me. 
our, our revenue. I, I pulled up the U.S. Treasury uh, website because I wanted the the real information without partisan spin. And it goes something like this: the 2022 fiscal year, which is the you know the government is on the federal government's on a a, a an October 1st to September 30th fiscal year. So. I believe this is the fiscal year that ended September 30th of 2022 that just ended a month and a half or almost two months ago. So uh, our revenue for the country is $4.9 trillion. Our total receipts, those of you who are accounting, were accounting majors or practice accounting or own your own business, you know what revenue is. For those of you who don't, it's, it's it's just cash receipts. It's, it's the money we took in. The expenses for the same period, so, so when we look at an income statement, we, we're measuring a period of time. So this is a, this is a fiscal year. And a fiscal year is, is just, it just means a, an, an actual uh, year where we measure for accounting purposes, where we measure data. And we express that data in dollars. So it, expenses for that period were a whopping $6.2 trillion. So we have... Revenue of four point nine trillion, but we spent six point two trillion, and the deficit is one point three eight trillion dollars. Now, we've been throwing around these numbers for a while, haven't we? And you know, a trillion starts to—I mean, to me, a trillion is really abstract. I—I I, I can visualize a lot of things financially. I've been you know, president of a bank, a CEO of a bank, and in senior positions at a big regional bank, and and I I, I do fairly well with financial analysis, and and I I have a a good comfort with numbers, but I can't conceptualize a trillion dollars. I know it's a thousand billion, and I know a billion is a thousand million. That's one way to think of it, isn't it? But a trillion's just a lot. So listen to this. I heard somebody break it down this way, and I like this. If you measure it in time, a million seconds in days, and you can do this math, is 11.57 days, a million seconds. So you, know, you, can, you can just imagine 1,001, 1,002, 1,003. So, so we have a million seconds in 11.57 days. But if we want to look at a billion seconds, we have to go to years and it's 31.7 years. A billion seconds is 31.71, if you're round, years. So we, we, we go back to, well, how far back do we go? 90, 1990-ish, at some point in 1990 to go back a billion seconds. But watch this. When we go back a trillion seconds or we measure how long a trillion seconds is, it's 31,709 years because a trillion is a thousand billion. And I know math folks are rolling their eyes thinking, well, of course it is. But that's just staggering to me. A trillion seconds is 31,709 years, whereas a million seconds is just 11.57 days. So I hope that perspective is helpful. So to lose $1.38 trillion is, is, a, is a huge loss. 
when I say loss, I mean a deficit. So we, we took in 4.9 trillion and we spent 6.2 and we had a deficit of 1.38 trillion dollars. Here's the clunky part. I want to talk about the sources of the income. And this might surprise you. 54% roughly of the income, the federal government's income is individual income taxes. That means 2.63 trillion of the 4.9 trillion in revenue is from individual income taxes and that's 54% of the total income of the federal government. We're talking federal government here. Listen to this number. Corporate taxes from corporate tax returns is 425 billion, only 9% of the revenue of the government. So you can have some fun with this. I mean, it's it's not fun, but if you if you if you want to be cute about this, you can you can look at all the corporate profits and you can, you can look at well, what happens if we raise corporate tax? You know, you can you can double corporate taxes, and you're still not going to touch that deficit. You're not going to eliminate the deficit, and to double the taxes, corporate taxes would be devastating to companies. So we're not we're not going to argue philosophically here, but but we're just going to be realistic about the numbers. So individual income taxes account for two point six three trillion. Corporate taxes, $425 billion. But then we, we've, we've merged you know, the way we account for Social Security and Medicare. And so we get some income from payroll taxes, too. Social Security and Medicare taxes. And that is $1.48 trillion, or 30% of the federal government's annual revenue for the fiscal year ended September 30th of 2022. Then we have this thing called excise taxes. Accountants, you know what that is. They're kind of special taxes. They're, they're sort of designed to, to, to penalize. They're, they're, uh, they're, if, you, if you have a, a windfall of profit or individual profit, you, you could have to pay under certain circumstances excise taxes. Well, they, I mean, they're kind of a rounding error, but it's still a lot of money. $88 billion or 2% of the of the government's revenue. And then we have customs duties. And so th- those amount to a hundred billion or 2% roughly rounded per year, a hundred billion dollars. So, so if you're one of those people who says, you know what, the problem is trade, let's tax trade more. Well, you can triple or quadruple or, or multiply our customs duties times 10. And that could have a really interesting impact on the economy. Interesting meaning bad but you still don't eliminate the deficit and you could never do that because you'd you'd alter the way the world trades with us and that that wouldn't be good our trade balance tells us that we import more than we export and so all these all these comparisons with Japan and their monetary policy go out the window with me because we they they export so much more than they import that has an impact on the yen that's not the subject of our conversation today, though. And then we have my least favorite category in any budget. It's called miscellaneous, which means all the stuff we didn't know where to put. So we have $135 billion or 3% there for a grand total for revenue of $4.9 trillion. So 54% of it is individual income tax 
9% is corporate taxes. It just seems like, in my opinion, Social Security and Medicare aren't touchable. They are what they are. Maybe not. Maybe you say, we'd like to change that a little bit. We'd like to alter that, or we're going to have to alter it somehow. In any case, let's look at expenses, because I, you know, it's it's funny. My students are so bright, and they 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 immediately uh, lock on to these expenses, this $6.2 trillion, and they say, look, why can't Congress just be responsible? And, and we, we actually talked this through. We, we talked through solutions, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that today. So the first expense category is, is Social Security. If you, if you just look at the government's cash flow, forget the fund and, 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 and fund accounting and all that stuff. But if you, if you look at this $6.2 trillion that causes this $1.38 trillion deficit, if you look at the $6.2 trillion in expenses, the biggest one at 19% of the total is Social Security at $1.22 trillion. If you've been on this earth as long as I have or longer, you've watched the retirement age move upward. I'm not even sure what it is. For me, it's to get full social security benefits, I think it's, I have to be 65 years old and 10 months, 65 years and 10 months old. I could be wrong. It might be 66. I should know that, but I don't. So social security has, has moved around. Benefits have changed. The eligibility has changed. You can, you can get your social security benefits early at age 62. If you wish, if you qualify, if you've put enough in, but you but you get a discounted amount. So Social Security benefits account for 19% of this $6.2 trillion at $1.22 trillion. Then you have expenses related to health care at $914 billion. Again, this is federal government spending, $914 billion on health care. That's 15%. Then for this year, 2022, that we're talking about, Income security programs at $865 billion at 14% of the total expenses. And then, this will shock some of you, defense spending is fourth. And we spend $767 billion or 12% of these expenses on defense. Now, many of you would have thought, well, no, that should be defense is probably at the top of the list. A couple of my students said that when they were guessing. Um, but $767 billion is still a lot of money. And I would imagine some of you are reacting. Some of you are saying, yeah, let's, let's cut defense. We have all this waste and all these programs. And then others say, well, no, we can't cut defense. My goodness, look at China and Russia and all the threats. Uh, Russia, would they just invaded Ukraine. We've got to have enough strength to hold them at bay and but wait a minute, what happened to all this hardware we left behind in Afghanistan? There's definitely waste. And there's a debate to be had in all of these categories. Next on the list is Medicare, $755 billion, also about 12%. And then we have one of my favorites, education, employment, and social services, $677 billion, or 11% of the total government expenses for the year. Now, my students jump up and down on this one and say, well, wait a minute, we just studied the Constitution. Why is the federal government even involved in education? 
They make a good point. The only argument for their involvement in the education is the general welfare clause in the Constitution. You could make an argument that education is good for the general welfare of the people and the country. I think that's a pretty good argument. But the redundancy that we have at the federal level being involved in education, if you drive down that street in Washington, D.C., and I can't remember the name of the street, it's not Pennsylvania Avenue, it's some other street where a bunch of government offices are, you see just building after building that says United States Department of Education on it. I'm not sure what they do. I'm, I'm sure some of you think, well... You're a Neanderthal for even suggesting this, but, I, but I, I'm not sure they're necessary. I'm thinking the states could do this. In fact, I think the Tenth Amendment that specifies that all the powers not given to Congress or the judiciary or the executive branch go to the states or the people. That's what it says. Read it. All right. So education, employment, and social services is $677 billion or 11%. Here's another favorite, net interest. So this, this is complicated, I, I will say. If you look it up, it's $475 billion. And if you look at our national debt at about $32 trillion, and we're going to explore that in a moment, but $32 trillion, then, and you look at what the Fed has just done a few weeks ago, they raised the discount rate from... 3.25% to 4%. Just to be clear, that's the rate that banks pay the Fed and that the bank and banks charge each other for overnight borrowings. It's an overnight rate only. But if you look at the the interest the Fed has to play and I pay, and I believe the average duration on the Fed's debt is five years. Don't hold me to that. But I read an article that said that. So they're paying $475 billion a year. And as the yield curve slopes upward, as long-term interest rates go up, and 30-year mortgages are now over 7%, so, and that's just an indication of what this bond market is doing, so, so the, the Fed is going to be paying more net interest. Now, they're going to be collecting more interest, too, on, on their own investments, and there are some internal transfers and some other things. It's, it's difficult to get a real straightforward calculation here, a real straightforward number on the interest that the government pays on its debt. But the net number for 2022 was $475 billion or 8% of the total expenses of the United States government. Then we have another untouchable category. It's, it's so funny because these words mandatory and discretionary always get thrown around when we talk about the Congress. And, and, and a lot of these expenses are considered mandatory by a lot of people. They're not all the same constituents, but a lot of Americans think that defense is untouchable. Social Security is untouchable. Healthcare is untouchable. Medicare is untouchable. Education, yeah, we could trim it. We could trim some fat out of all of this, but but probably not enough to make probably not enough to make a huge difference. But net interest, you got to pay your interest. We don't want to fault on our default on our debt and reduce our credit rating further. But here's one: veterans' benefits. That's another one that's untouchable. In fact, we could make a strong argument that we don't spend enough. That number is two hundred seventy-four billion dollars, or four percent. Then we have transportation. Don't get me started on this. $132 billion. I would imagine most of that goes to Amtrak or who knows where else. Probably federal highways and Amtrak. And then, then we have general government. Gotta love that one. $129 billion. 
And then we have other at $65 billion, $129 billion for general government and other $65 billion for a total of $6.27 billion. The national debt, and by the time I get this word out of my mouth, it'll be obsolete, sadly, at this writing was $31,218,945,400,000 dollars. 31.3, let's round up, trillion dollars. Now, GDP for our country, let's talk about GDP for a moment. Some of you, you get tired of hearing these things and you, and you, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to put these things in perspective because the media throws them around sometimes correctly, sometimes incorrectly, but GDP is gross domestic product. And if we were sitting in an economics class, and if you remember sitting in an economics class or a finance class, you learn that that means the dollar value of all finished goods and services in the economy. So it's complicated. We calculate this through sampling. We use a sample size that is statistically significant to get to this estimate, but it's a pretty good estimate. And we use the same estimating resources, the same methodology from year to year. And, and, and so the change from year to year is, is reliable and, and significant. It's a, it's a significant thing to observe. So GDP for the country, gross domestic product, which is here's another way to think of it. If you don't like all that technical stuff, just think of it as the dollar value of economic output. Now, they, they only measure finished goods and services, not raw materials. And you can kind of get in the weeds on all that and get lost. But but it's it's the it's the output of our economy. It used to be called for those who are older. You remember that we called it gross national product back in the day. Now it's gross domestic product. A more clear way to say it. So that number is 22 to 23 trillion dollars a year. So now our national debt, and here's where we all gasp, exceeds our our GDP, the output in our economy. But don't fear, we estimate that GDP is going up this year to 23.5 trillion dollars. We think in 2021 it was just 21 trillion dollars. So our economy is growing. And that seems like a good thing, doesn't it? Now, if you had calculus, if you took calculus or, or you, you are, you, you're into math and, and uh, you, you might have learned this even in pre-calculus, you, you've learned how to solve simultaneous equations. So that is a valuable skill set to have as we look at these things, because now we've got, think about this for a moment, We've got runaway inflation, and I don't like that word runaway, but that's what it is. If you if you go to the your supermarket, you you know you're 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 kind of paying almost double for what you paid for a lot of things that are I, I don't know what essentials means, but you know basic food, not anything too fancy. Uh, you're you're kind of paying double what you paid a year year and a half ago, and we track inflation. We we you know the government tracks this basket of goods and they do it in in major cities and, and it's kind of flawed but again the methodology stays the same so the change is valuable to measure and we've been tracking at over eight percent inflation for the last i don't know how many months many months most of most of this year and so 
you, you know, you're paying more. And so, so the government has a problem here and, and, and that is how do you, how do you solve this runaway deficit issue and this growing exponentially growing national debt while, while also not, not overstimulating the economy. And so what the fed has decided to do, and I think they're doing a good job of this with the resources they have, and they have just a very few resources. And the primary one is, is cutting interest rates or raising interest rates in this case managing interest rates let's call it that um and and so so since that's their their primary tool their most effective tool i i think they're doing it pretty well this this these three quarter point increases are unprecedented if you go back through history these increases are usually few and far between or decreases i mean the fed tries not to the only period i can remember where they did something like this in reverse is right after 9-11 you might remember they cut rates again and again and again very quickly and that was designed to keep the economy from crashing. So um, in any case, they, they, it, it's complicated and they've got to ma uh, manage several variables. So I always ask my students then at this point, and this is something for us to contemplate. Well, and, and you know, I have them imagine that they are all U.S. senators and we're sitting in the Senate. And I say, you got a blank slate in front of you. Here's the problem. You know, it's $32 trillion in, in national debt and a deficit every year for the last many years. What do you do to solve it? And so we start with expense cuts and being more efficient and those things I mentioned earlier. But but we really can't find anything in this list. I mean, my, my students would, would eliminate the Department of Education and, and some social services. That It'd be hard to find anybody with a political resolve to do that. But let's say we did. That's $677 billion and say we cut it in half. I mean, it, it, can you just imagine the outcry from the media if you did that? Um, say you cut Social Security. I mean, that we paid that money in and employers paid it in. and uh, But 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 you, you got to do something or, or we cut Medicare. I mean, and, and then I asked the students, well, okay, have you, have you heard anyone campaign ever? And, and they follow these elections. They follow this election in particular, because they're in my class and we talk about the news every week. Have you heard anybody campaigning on this, this fiscal soundness, this, this being responsible or balancing the budget, not having a deficit. And they all look at me and say, no, nobody ever Mentions. I, I'm sure you can find somebody. You might know of somebody locally in a local race where you've heard them, you know, campaign on this. But for the most part, members of the House running for these, these 435 House seats and members of the Senate running for these 100 Senate seats. And, and they don't all run at once. They, a third of them are elected every two years. But but those those 535 people who, who we call our Congress, they don't campaign on this stuff. And you know the reason why their opponents would absolutely humiliate them if they did. They would say, Joe Smith wants to cut your Social Security or he wanted to cut Medicaid. There were several uh, Democrats I saw who tried to because because of a few Republican incumbents who said something reasonably fiscally conservative. They tried to kind of pin that on them and, and criticize them for that. So. This is a challenging issue. And, and what we conclude is we can't really cut expenses and get there. So then we go back. And I know this is a little tedious to do just with audio, 
But we go back and look at the income, which as a reminder, revenue is $4.9 trillion. And we look at the deficit, $1.38 trillion, and we say, okay, then why don't we just raise the revenue? It's always, you know, I grew up around some business people who I learned all about banking from some people who really get this. And I don't want to start naming names because I'll leave some people out. But, but you, you know, the, the expression is you can't cut your way to prosperity. But why don't, why don't we grow? Grow the economy. We grow the economy and income taxes go up. This $2.63 trillion that we collect in income tax, why don't we, why don't we try to make that higher by the $1.38 trillion that we need to balance the budget? Well, how do we do that? Is Bernie Sanders right? Well, hold on a second. What about these evil corporations? They only pay $425 billion. They get loopholes. Amazon isn't paying taxes. Walmart measures their, uh, manages their tax burden. Apple doesn't pay that much in taxes. They get all these benefits for research and development and investment. And they, they hire the best tax attorneys. And, and they, they know exactly what they're doing. Why don't they pay, here it is, their fair share? Okay, let's take corporate taxes and double them. That, that'd be about 40 to 50% for most corporations. Let's double that number, $425 billion. We still have a problem, don't we? We still have about a trillion dollar deficit. Further, if we double that number, what do the corporations do? Well, I know I'm oversimplifying here, but not by a lot. They lay people off because their number one expense, if you look at your favorite company and you get a hold of their income statement, or if you have a company, if you have a sole proprietorship and you look at your expenses, one, one of the largest numbers in that expense list is going to be salaries. So they downsize. So, so then they move people into an expense category for, for unemployment benefits from their payroll. And we really don't get the efficacy of of the increase in corporate taxes. In fact, there's an argument to be made that corporations would then kind of pull their horns in and not grow, not advance. And this sounds like a, a really esoteric argument until you think about the fact that if a company's paying 20% in taxes and they, they make $100, they, they pay $20 in tax, and their shareholders get accustomed to, um, you know, whatever return, they, they've been accustomed to. And if you alter that by just changing taxes, you're going to change corporate strategy. So here's another thought. Aren't you, aren't you just going to, if you raise corporate taxes, and, and, and we, could, we could do that a little bit, I guess, uh, to, to some degree. I wouldn't, I wouldn't raise them a lot. But aren't you just going to disintermediate? Aren't you just going to then make them eliminate people on their payroll, thereby reducing the individual income tax number, which is the largest number in the income list for the federal government. So you might make this $425 billion number higher in theory, but you're just going to reduce the $2.63 trillion in individual income tax. So we talked through all of this. We talked through all the expense categories, all the income categories. Hey, could we do a little better? What happens psychologically and, and all the rest? And you know what we go back to? And th this, this is going to sound like, a, like an oversimplification, but 
these students are actually brilliant. And, and, and they, I mean, with a capital B brilliant, they, they actually understand things. <laughs> they, I, it gives me, I, and I tell them this uh, I, way more often than I probably should. I tell them that they give me confidence in their generation and they, they quickly remind me that, that, you know, they're not necessarily in the majority, even in their age group, but they know what they're doing. And they say that, you know, what we finally conclude we conclude that, and here, here I'm just going to blurt it out, a modest individual income tax cut is needed to accomplish balancing the budget. See, these students realize that to get to that income tax number, you've got a couple of things to consider. You've got total taxable income, don't you, times a mar- average marginal tax rate. So you know what they're thinking is if we can do some things that are stimulative to income, then we could even lower tax rates to kind of get people excited and on board. And they always add the word slightly or modestly or moderately to the tax cut. But you send a signal to the market that creates enthusiasm. And so Bottom line, what we what we walk away with is, yes, we need to raise income. Yes, government could always be a little more efficient. But the real way we get there is by reducing the marginal personal income tax rate. We're even open to the notion that some loopholes for the wealthy should be closed. Or perhaps at a certain level of, of not wealth, but income, there, there, some of the provisions, some of the deductions that are afforded should be taken away or reduced. We're open to that. But we understand that, that taxing wealth, which is, is what the far left would suggest, the far woke left would, would suggest, because it just feels good, because they've got too much money and they made too much money. But we, we realize that that's, that's not good for anybody. So... So maybe you make them pay a little more by taking away some deductions. Maybe you don't give them the break that you give the middle class, middle and lower class earners. But but they, these students can do the math and they know that if you really aggressively even taxed wealth, which would be hideous to do, immoral to do, the students know that the, the Constitution doesn't allow it. But if you did it, you still don't balance this budget. This budget is only balanced through growth period end of discussion now again we can be more prudent we can save some money on expenses and so on now i want to change gears on you for a moment same topic same general topic but i've got a i've got a website in front of me and and it it's it's not this time it's not the treasury but i i looked it up three places the the history of the government budget total receipts, outlays, and surplus or deficit. We really only started tracking this well in 1930. Now, my students also understand that we're, we're in a very similar period to, the, to the, the 1930-ish time period. They had just come out of, and I've talked about this before on this podcast, the Spanish flu and World War I. Everybody's Please, the world didn't end in, in two respects. 
We called it the Roaring Twenties, if you remember. Electricity had had become something that was in widespread use now, at least in the cities. It's making its way into the countryside. And, and, and we have the electric light. We can stay up longer. We can do other things. Cooking just got a whole lot easier. And we can see at night. And, and, uh, and, and here comes the Industrial Revolution. And, you know, there have been several big economic resolution, uh, revolutions. We're, we're in one now, the computational one. We've been in for 50 or 60 years even. And more on that on another, another episode. But we, we go back to this period where Americans had been spending on credit to buy appliances. There, there was a happy days are here again. The stock market was fueled by speculation and spending uh, with credit. And then uh, along comes the, the uh, Great Depression. So uh, Calvin Coolidge was president in 1930, the first year that we started tracking this data. And we had a government budget surplus of in in uh this is in billions of dollars 0.7 billion or that would be 700 million dollars and then along comes herbert hoover he's in office for four years from 1931 1934 and and he has a deficit every year 500 million 2.7 2.6 3.6 billion we're still doing okay then we get to franklin D. Roosevelt, who never met cash that he didn't want to spend. I mean, think what you want of him is the rest of his presidency. I know he did some good things and I know World War II happened, but his maximum deficit was $54 billion. During World War II, in 1942, we had a deficit of $20 billion. 43, we had a deficit of 54 billion and 44, 47 billion, 45, 47 billion. And then it started coming down in 46. It came down to $15.9 billion. Then comes Harry Truman, who knew how to manage the government fiscally. He served for two terms, eight years, and he had a surplus of 4 billion, 11 billion, 600 million, and then a deficit of 3.1 billion a surplus of $6 billion, and then three years of modest deficits, ending his presidency in 1954 with a deficit of $1.2 billion. Then the general, Dwight D. Eisenhower, comes along, and he had a couple of surplus years and uh, $3 billion in uh, deficit his first year, which he could blame on the previous administration, Harry Truman, and then in 1959, he, he maxed out at $12.8 billion, which is not the highest deficit we had had to date. And then uh, modest uh, surplus and a couple of modest uh, deficits for the remaining of his term, 1961 and 1962. And then John Kennedy, who only served one year and part of another year, he had deficits of $4.8 and $5.9 billion, respectively. Then comes Lyndon Baines Johnson, who's a pretty good money spender. In 1968, uh, so he, he served uh, for six years and um, because he finished uh, Kennedy's term, if you recall. And in 1968, he had his highest deficit, which was $25.2 trillion. Then Richard Milhouse Nixon III comes along, and he was a pretty good money spender, too. He, he served for five years. If you remember, he was he was reelected for a second term and then resigned because he was about to get impeached. 
his deficits ranged from 6.1 billion in 1974 to a maximum in 1975 of 53 billion dollars. Then Gerald Ford, who if you recall was speaker of the house and then became president, he, his his deficits ranged from well, his first year uh, he he was at 73 billion dollars. Then we changed the way we calculate it and so his second year was only uh, it, was, it was just a two-quarter thing. It doesn't matter. And then in 1977, the deficit was $53.7 billion. Then my favorite peanut farmer, Jimmy Carter, becomes president. He he has a deficit every year, $59 billion, $40 billion, $73 billion, and $79 billion. But then here's the shocker. The president I love most on principle, Ronald Reagan, takes office. And we're going to learn something here. We're going to learn something else when we get to Bill Clinton, but but just stay with me. His deficits, he had a deficit all eight years. He served two terms, you may remember. He inherited a mess of an economy. And, and we were a mess on the world stage. You remember the Iran hostage uh, situation? And, and I think it was his first day in office that they released the hostages, probably because they were afraid of him. But listen to his deficits. Every year is a deficit. 128 billion, 207 billion, 185 billion, 212 billion, 221 billion, 149 billion, 155 billion, and 152 billion dollars. And you gasp and say, what in the world is a Republican president who's so principled doing racking up these huge deficits? You might remember he had a Democrat Congress to deal with. And he tried hard to balance the budget through his Office of Management and Budget Director David Stockman. He believed in supply-side economics, but the Congress spent money like crazy nonetheless. Am I blaming the Congress for all of this? No, I'm not. But that's the dynamic. Republican in the Oval Office, Democrat Congress. So yes, I blame Tip O'Neill for some of this. Then we have George Bush, the first George Bush, George Herbert Walker Bush, who continued what what uh, President Reagan started. His deficits were two hundred twenty one billion, two hundred sixty nine billion, two hundred ninety billion and two hundred fifty five billion. Then along comes Bill Clinton. We enjoyed economic prosperity during Bill Clinton during his first term. He continued to rack up deficits of $203 billion, $164 billion, $107 billion, and $21 billion. And then what happened? You'll remember, and I think it's significant, Republicans took over control of the Congress. You see, there, there are 536 people who contribute. There are far more than that, but who really put their necks on the line fiscally for the United States, or at least they do in my mind. That is the president 100 senators and 435 members of the House. The Democrats in the midterm election, not the midterm election, but halfway through Clinton's eight-year total term, his two terms, lost control of the Congress and Republicans took over. And in 1998, wait for it, we had a surplus of $69 billion. In 1999, we had a surplus of $125 billion dollars. In 2000, we had a surplus of $236 billion. And in 2001, $128 billion. During Bill Clinton's presidency, we enjoyed four years of prosperity with surpluses, not deficits. So, ladies and gentlemen, it can be done. But then, 
We experienced 9-11. George Bush is president. George H.W. Bush's son. And here we go again. Deficits. $157 billion in 2002. $377 billion. $412 billion. And it kind of stays at that level. Until 2009. Wait for it. $1.4 trillion. What happened in 2009? Well, we call it the Great Recession. Nothing great about it. It was a it was a big mess. What did government do? They threw cash at the problem, didn't they? Do you remember cash for clunkers? I mean, that's about the worst government program I've ever heard of. They bailed out the car business. Ford didn't participate, thankfully. But you could you could bring your clunker in and get some tax incentive for it. The government would basically pay you for your used car if you bought a new one. They bailed out the automakers. They bailed out insurance companies. They bailed out the banks with a program called TARP, Troubled Asset Relief Program. Was some of that necessary? Maybe. Was all of it necessary? No. No. Some of this spending was absurd and irresponsible. So George W. Bush served two terms. He had a deficit every year, and you could argue that the economic calamity of 2008 and 2009 forced this acceleration in the, in the deficit, and maybe it did force some, but, but not $1.4 trillion. This is the point where a trillion started to sound small because it came, became commonplace. Barack Obama is elected president in 2010, the economic calamity continues and the deficit is 1.2 trillion dollars for 2010 then 2011 1.3 2012 a trillion then we go back in the billions for 2013 14 15 16 and 17 but the lowest number in his presidency was 400 a deficit of 442 billion dollars the highest was 1. 294 trillion dollars. So let me let me just finish this and 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 then I'll I'll make a philosophical argument maybe. Donald Trump took office in 2018 and his deficit the first 2 years was uh, 779 billion and 983 billion respectively. And then along comes covid and what what do you think happened? Are you sitting down you need to be. You might want to pull your car over for this one. 220 uh, t- 2020, the deficit was $3.129 trillion, a record. Why was that? Well, COVID. Yep, we can blame it on COVID, but it was our poor reaction to try to prop up the economy. This is the stimulus. This is two rounds of PPP. And, and you can argue all you want that the stimulus was needed and that PPP was necessary. And, and I, I will I'll tell you right now, maybe some of that. Maybe there was some level of aid that was needed, but it is this spending and printing of money that has led us to this runaway inflation problem. The next year, the deficit is $3.668 trillion. Then we have Pre- President Biden, his first year, 2022, the deficit is $1.8 trillion. We estimate 
2023 and following at 1.3 trillion, 1.3 trillion, 1.4 trillion, and 1.4 trillion dollars. Now, let me go ahead and just further depress you with this little little gem. They the government has unfunded obligations, other unfunded obligations. In other words, they're on the hook to pay Social Security for the for the future. They're on the hook for some other entitlement programs for the future. And when you do all the math, you take all government obligations. We're actually committed to, we actually have a debt problem of about $150 trillion. It's time to do two things. And it is, you know, we're 53 minutes into this discussion. And I I want to ask you to send this podcast episode to your elected representatives or at least call them or write them and tell them to consider this. I'd like you to consider whether you agree with this or not. Number one, Congress, please pass a balanced budget amendment, similar to what we had during the Clinton administration. Please both sides of the aisle. In fact, wouldn't it be cool after this contentious election season that we just had, Wouldn't it be neat if we had 400, let's make that 536 people, the president and the entire Congress, the senators and members of the House agree, voting members of the House agree on this. Let's balance the budget. Find a way. Balance it. Balance the budget. Stop the crazy spending. Do things that are that are stimulative to income. Stop printing money, please. You're making the inflation problem worse. You can resolve. The Federal Reserve is going to do just fine raising interest rates. The world's not going to end. And, and they're, they're doing just fine raising interest rates to, to, to kind of make the economy chill. So, so just, just do those things. Just balance the budget. Don't allow deficit spending. Pass a balanced budget. Go on record. Don't be afraid. If all of you do it, you, you, you know, it won't be a political football at that point. Balance the budget and, and, and stop printing money. Stop the stimulus. Stop the, stop the things that you think you need to do to stimulate the economy. Take your hands off the wheel. Let the car come out of the spin, out of the slide on its own. And we can return to a prosperous economy. I'm telling you right now, if we would do that, if, we, if Congress could do those two things, we would, we would, you, you could almost count on prosperity for the entire lifetime of your children, your children who've already been born, who are young right now. Because yes, we would have normal economic cycles, the normal ups and downs of the economy. Every, every 10 years or so, we'd have a modest recession. That's just how it works. That's how cycles work. But in capitalism, we've got opportunity that's created, opportunities created when we encounter a trough. And then there's selling off that happens when we get to a peak. And so those are just kind of waves in the ocean that we can tolerate. But what we can't do is nothing. We can't do the political finger pointing and, and end up continuing to run this debt up. It's going to get to the point. I... I, there, there's, there's another, another website we could go to where we look at the a debt as a percentage of GDP. And that is a horrifying site. 
and and no stop comparing us for, to Japan's monetary policy. They are they have a a trade surplus. We have a trade deficit. The dollar and the yen aren't the same as a result. This this is this is now the warning cry time for our national debt. And it's time to deal with it. A few courageous people on both sides of the aisle could make this happen and balance the budget. If your family doesn't balance its budget, you go bankrupt. You become insolvent. And that's where the federal government is. They're getting close to that level. So, yes, we trust God. We can rest in him. We rest in his promises. If you've been with me uh, through all these episodes and walking through the book of Romans, you know that that yes, that I'm pushing an alarm button today for sure with the facts, but we trust in God, not in man. And we're, we're okay. We're going to be fine. But God expects us to be prudent, to use our brains. My students, 16 and 17 year old students get this. They understand this and they scratch their heads at how stupid we are. And, and they know we're spending their money. We know we're, they, that we are obligating them and it's shameful. And it's time to, to make a change. So I promise I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try again to contact my two senators and, and congressperson for several districts that I function in in Central Florida. I'd ask you to do that as well. Those of you who are international listeners, my apology. The United States is a wonderful place and there's a wonderful opportunity here. But there's something about electing people who's... who's Self-interest changes. It changes from the interest of the of the voters of the of the the governed to, to their own interest and protecting their political interest, and that's where this conflict occurs. So, thank you for indulging this conversation about American politics and and uh, American fiscal policy. I hope you will like, share, review, and subscribe to Relentless Truth. It's an honor to be with you. I'm going to take a break. I'm taking a break for a few weeks, and we're going to have some of my favorite episodes coming up. We're going to have four Charlie Parrish episodes, Pastor Charlie Parrish, with us for the next. It's going to be Relentless Truth Rewind. You might remember him. He is a theologian, a pastor, has a pastor's heart and communication skills. You'll really enjoy that during the holidays over the next four weeks. And then I'm going to bring back that episode with Sharla Elton, who's the superintendent of schools at Heritage Christian School. I think you'll enjoy her, her as well. Then we'll be back the second Monday in January with new episodes. I have some exciting ones planned. I look forward to being with you again soon. Don't hesitate to send along an email to john at johnmorinmedia.com in the meantime. Thanks for listening to Relentless Truth with John Warren. Please consider sharing this podcast and subscribe to receive future episodes. Connect with John regarding your comments, questions, and show ideas through johnwarrenmedia.com or at John Warren Media on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. That's all for this episode. Join us next week for another edition of Relentless Truth with John Warren. Music